What's up, y'all? So, man, today's a big day. Uh, we are starting our first uh, growth group in the life of Renaissance Church, as well as all of our DNA groups. And we've had almost like 500 people sign up for our growth groups and DNA groups this semester. And we are really excited. And uh, one thing that I've been realizing over the years is that what God wants to do to grow us oftentimes is God just sows seeds in our lives. And we're praying that the seeds that are being sown through the growth groups and the DNA groups this semester uh, will grow. So they start today. If you're in a Sunday uh, DNA group, your kickoff call is today at 2 p.m. If you are in the Sunday growth group, your, call, your kickoff is today at 4 p.m. And the link should be distributed in emails. Um, but before we get into uh, today's message, I want to pray for us, for our entire community, and also certainly for uh, today's message. So Heavenly Father, God, you're good. Uh, even in times when we can't see the fullness of your goodness, God, you are calling us to yourself, even when we don't feel it or are, are not able to acknowledge the ways that you are pulling us towards you. So Lord, I pray that this time would be a time that we can get crystal clear vision from you, what it is that you want for us, um, what you want from us. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us exactly where we are. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So one of the, I guess the cool perks about my job is that um, I get a chance to like know a whole lot of people and it's not uncommon at all for me to be walking around the street at a restaurant and see someone uh, from Renaissance. So that quite honestly changed the way uh, that I walk around the street. I don't argue with my wife on the street. Um, <laughs> when my kids act up, I just have to bite my lip and say, wait till we get home, wait till we get home. <laughs> Uh, because I see so many people from, from Renaissance on the street, and uh, a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, um, I was walking down the block, and I went to my favorite bodega that made my bacon, egg, and cheese exactly the way it's supposed to be made. Once you've been in New York long enough and you find that one bodega, it's a, it's a deep symbiotic relationship that just uh, keeps on giving. So I went to my favorite uh, um, bodega to get my bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, and I'm walking down the block, and I was eating it on the street. I was, I was starving. And um, I just see this person staring at me. And I like went to wave with the alligator arm, like, do I know them? Do they go to Renaissance? Are they serving kids? And I'm just like, and it's awkward because they're not saying anything to me, but yet they're just like staring at me. So I was like, well, maybe they go to Renaissance. Maybe they, they felt intimidated. They didn't want to say anything to me on the street. I walk like 10 more minutes and get to my office. And as soon as I walk in my office, everybody's staring at me again there. And I'm like, man, this is like, maybe this outfit. I knew I was fresh this morning when I put this on. And I went to the, uh, the restroom, and there was an egg, a giant egg just sitting there in my beard. Now, to all of my bearded brothers, this is actually a point of celebration. Because once your beard is so voluptuous that you can just nest an egg there without even feeling it, it was on one part uh, a time to celebrate. But it was also pretty hilarious that I was walking around the street thinking I'm killing it, thinking I'm doing something. And people are looking at me like I'm crazy because I have this big egg in my beard. Now, the Bible talks about something else that is on us and in us that is equally difficult for us to see in ourselves, but it's way more dangerous than an egg on your face. Pride. Pride is something that's like really easy to see in other people. You can sense it a mile away. But the pride in you, man, it's almost like that, that, that egg that was in my beard. We're the last people that are able to see it. I was looking at this quote 
from a man named C.S. Lewis. He's an author. And I was thinking about this week, all the ways that I'm like really prideful. I call it just being competitive, but in reality, it's, it's pride inside of me. C.S. Lewis said this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. It's the comparison that makes us proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how dangerous this is because there's a scripture in the Bible that's repeated throughout the New Testament, which if you understand it, it is, it's bone jarring. It says this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Have you ever thought about what you can do in your life to make God accept you? What you could do for God to love you, for God to embrace you, for God to be proud of you? Conversely, what could you do in your life that would make God resist you, that would make God stand away from you? Scripture tells us that it's pride. And this pride is something that is so easy to see in other people, but it's incredibly difficult to see in ourselves. Pride, if we fully understood it, would be our greatest enemy, and humility would be our best friend. Pride is your greatest enemy. It's not the, way, it's not the, the, <clears throat> the person down the street. It's not your neighbor who's blessing reggaeton at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's not the person that really gets on your nerves. Pride, the pride inside of you, the pride inside of me is our greatest enemy, and humility is our best friend. Now, we are in week three of our series on the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are a set of statements inside of Jesus' longest recorded sermon. So in Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, it's a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's one uninterrupted sermon that Jesus is preaching. And in the sermon, there are these statements, these eight statements, where Jesus is redefining what does it mean to be blessed. If I were to ask you what does it mean to be blessed, I'm sure you would have a list similar to mine. To be blessed means I have family that loves me, people who are close to me. It means that I have my health. It means I can eat a good meal. I feel blessed when I'm eating Korean fried chicken. (laughs) Now, Jesus, I think, loves that. But above that, Jesus gives us a, a new definition of what it means to be blessed. So in the first week, we saw that blessed are the, the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God. Last week, we looked at blessed are those who mourn, uh, and we realized that God wants us to be a people who are in touch with and can explore the depths of our interior life, including the negative emotions of fear and sadness. And when we encounter the hardship of life, that we don't uh, distract ourselves, but we mourn it with God. And today we're looking at Jesus' statement, another one on what it means to be blessed, what it means for you to be blessed. And it's this, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Some versions say blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And humility is defined here as meekness. That's my amen right there. There we go, baby. (laughs) Humility is defined in in scripture as this word, this Greek word, praus. And as long as I have student loans, I have to break out the Greek every now and then. Um, And the word that Jesus uses here goes back to like ancient Greek literature. And what Jesus is basically saying is this. Praus are humble or the meek are animals basically who had learned to accept control from someone above you. So this concept of humility is someone who has learned. 
Not someone who was born with this knowledge, but someone who has learned through their life to accept the authority, the control, the direction, and to be dependent on someone above you. And Jesus says that your life will be blessed, not if you are really strong, but if you acknowledge and know your weakness and your dependence on God, our Father. But this does not come naturally for us. It's really easy for us to be prideful and not even know it. Uh, for some of you, it's not that you're competitive. You're just really defensive. You would call it something different. Uh, you would call it just being right. Oh, I was right, and they were wrong. And you always have to have the last say. You always have to be right in every single conversation. You always want to get to the facts and get to the truth, and you're just really defensive. It's hard for you to receive criticism. It's hard for you to acknowledge that you were wrong. And pride is a thing that keeps you from, from admitting that you were wrong. Even if you were just wrong 5% and the other person was wrong 95%, pride is a thing that keeps you focused on them and makes it almost impossible for you to see what's going on inside of, of you. But here's what Paul says in Romans 12 and 3, another humbling scripture. He says, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone, not some people, but everyone of you not to think more highly of yourself than he or she should think. That's a recipe for disaster. Thinking of yourself more highly than you should. So defensiveness is one real way that you might not be able to see it in yourself, but other people certainly would be able to see it in you, that pride is just really there in our lives. On the other end of this spectrum, really, not just defensiveness, but there are so many people who I encounter as a pastor who are not defensive. They just almost get lost in this self-loathing spiral. They, like, hate themselves. Some of this is theological. I think that the churches that uh, even I've been a part of over the years have taught me that I was a wretched sinner. Surely I was sinful from birth. But Ephesians tells us before you were born, you were loved. You are not a dirty, wretched sinner. You are loved before the foundation of the world. But there's so many people caught in self-loathing because of something you have done or because of something that's been done to you. And you just will constantly beat yourself up. But here's the thing. That's pride. That's pride because God has given you a different verdict than the verdict that you are giving yourself. And you are holding your standard, your verdict over you, above God's verdict over you. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. Here's why. It is the Lord who judges me. I am who God says I am, period. Uh, before I became a pastor, um, I was an attorney, and um, I did a lot of uh, traffic law and traffic cases where I represent uh, defendants in traffic cases. And I had one case in, uh, in Maryland, and um, I walked into the court and the judge was, like the bailiff was just, his energy was just different. He walked in and said, hey, I hope everybody has an attorney because everything, everybody in here, you might go to jail today. And I was like, that would be really terrible if my client goes to jail today um, for a traffic violation. And um, <clears throat> I had sent a letter to the court, uh, since I was admitted in New York, I had sent a letter to the court asking for permission to be, um, to try this one case in, in front of the court. And I was talking to the district attorney, and the district attorney was just arrogant. He had my client dead to rights. 
He says, I'm not offering your client anything. The best you can do is hope that the judge gives him a lenient sentence. So very humbly, I was sitting there um, hoping that the judge would have some, some lenience on us. And they called our case. We stood up. And I didn't even make it to the bench before the judge said, case dismissed. To this day, I still have no idea what the judge was thinking. And the DA was looking at me like confused. He had no idea what was going on. And guess what? It didn't matter what he thought about the case. It didn't matter what I thought about the case. It didn't matter what the defendant thought about the case. The judge said, case dismissed. So I said, yo, get Keisha. We leaving. We out. We out. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Before the judge changes their mind. Pride will tell you that the verdict spoken over you by the judge, the one who truly can pronounce guilt or innocence, that says, as far, for those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, let me, let me talk to y'all for a second. If you have placed your faith in Christ, what are we saying? We're saying, I have placed my faith in Jesus, not to be my example. Jesus gives us great uh, models of how we should live life. But I'm saying, I believe that Jesus went to the cross and paid for my sins. And when he said it is finished, it's finished. There's nothing you can add to it without taking away from it. And us trying to add our self-loathing, our beating ourselves up, is taking away from the perfection of Jesus on the cross that God is pleased with, that God accepts on, behalf of, on, on our behalf, that we can be spotless. One psalm says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you have separated us from our sins. The east and the west will never touch. But yet in our self-loathing, we think that our opinion is higher than God's judgment over us. And that's not humility. That's pride. Other times, it's not um, that we're self-loathing. We're just really easily offended. Um, my wife tells me that I view everything through the lens of disrespect. Um, I can go to Chipotle, and they could be, I could be like, yeah, I'll, I'll take some guac. And they're like, that's $250. i am like, yo, I got $250, bro. They don't, I, can, I can pay the $250. I can get guac for everybody in this restaurant. Everybody getting guac. <laughs> and in those moments where I'm so easily offended, it's that I'm prideful. Uh, one word for pride in scripture is actually puffed up. It's like a balloon that's just really, really, really inflated. And if you've ever been to a kid's birthday party where they have the balloons really, uh, really inflated, one is always going to break really easy because it could just scrape against the door and it will break. But a balloon that's like barely inflated, you really have to go after it to deflate it or to pop it. And some of us are so easily inflated, we're so easily bursted because we're puffed up. God forbid anybody say anything against you or even question you in the slightest. Last one is we're judgmental. As soon as I started talking about pride, you were like, yo, that dude, Matthew, is a prideful dude. I wish he was here to hear this today. <laughs> you were thinking about the other person and what they should do. You weren't even able to think about yourself. Uh, one thing I noticed about myself is that um, I've become judgmental of other people's journeys. Faith is a journey. It's not a destination. It's not something you'll get to on Tuesday. It's not a set of demands and commands for you to follow. It's not a checklist. Life with Jesus is a journey. And you have no idea what has gone into someone's past that has brought them to this place in life and their journeys. You have no clue. You have no clue about the traumas that they faced. You have no clue about the family of origin and how they were raised. You have no idea about the hardships that they faced. You have no idea. I have no idea. And oftentimes, when I'm judgmental of other people, 
Man, I just need to be shaken sometimes and saying, Jordan, why are you judging another man's servant? These people, they're not mine for me to judge them. And I see this so many times, even in our community, uh, we're very quick to judge other people's journeys instead of being curious, instead of praying for people um, in their lives. But here's something that's really fascinating. The greatest reason, as Peter Kreft says it, the deepest reason God hates pride, the reason pride is so hellish is that it keeps us from knowing God. That's why God hates your pride, because it keeps you from knowing him. Pride keeps us looking down, and no one can see God but by looking up. So the antidote to pride is the blessed life that Jesus is describing here in Matthew 5 and 5. Blessed are those are the humble, for they will see God. Blessed are those who learn to accept God's control over their lives. Blessed are those who are able to receive and live out of a dependence on God and on other people. I thought I finished with the, symptom, the list of symptoms, and here's the one that is almost tr- is true of about 99.7% of everybody in ministry. It's incredibly for, easy for them to give help, but incredibly difficult for them to ask for help. That's not because they're great ministry people. They're prideful. I'm prideful so many times that it's really hard for me to ask for help, to admit that I don't have it uh, in my life. So Jesus wants us to be humble. He wants us to be, acknowledge our dependence, not just on him, but on other people, the community of faith around us. And that's really difficult for us to do that because as a people, yo, we just hate, hate, hate authority. Like our culture, America as a country, was founded to flee the authority and the control of the Brits. And in the water, in the air in America is this autonomy that we so long and we so crave. It's really interesting. We, if you think about America and how we got here in the pandemic, how we have been at this place where we have had so many more deaths than any country per capita is not even funny. So many unnecessary deaths, so many lives lost forever. And our pandemic response was terrible because we have put autonomy over the collective us. We're not asking what's good for everybody. We're asking, what do I want to do? And that's what landed us in the position that we have found ourselves. Now, that's true about the pandemic, and that's also true about almost every facet of our life on both sides of the political aisles. We crave autonomy. We crave the ability for nobody to tell us what to do. So part one, it's cultural that we hate authority over us. And it's also theological and biblical. Our earliest foreparents, Adam and Eve, uh, they were placed, given life by God in the middle of the garden, walking with God day and night. God said, you can have anything you want except for this one tree. God placed that one tree in the middle of the garden as a reminder of their limitation. And God in his goodness and his love was walking with them day and night. Scripture says that the enemy comes in to tempt them. He shows them this tree, says, did God really say you're going to die if you eat that? No, you ain't going to die. God knows that if you eat this tree, you're going to be just like him, knowing good and evil. And what was it that tempted Adam and Eve to eat of that tree? It was, I want to be equal with God. I don't want to submit to God's ruler, uh, his, God's rule and his leadership in my life. I want to decide for myself what is good and evil. So they ate it. So we have inherited this not just culturally, but, from our, but also spiritually. But Jesus reminds us, but blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. It's really interesting that Jesus uses that phrase, inherit the earth, because the opposite is what happened in Adam and Eve. They were kicked out of God's presence. 
they were kicked out of the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve lost it in searching for their independence, as Jesus is telling us we can get it back by acknowledging our dependence. So how do, how do you get rid of pride in your life? Like really practically speaking this week, how do, how do you become a person who can live a blessed life that Jesus is describing here to live humbly? What does the law require of you but to, to live humbly? What would it mean for you to, to be a person who lives humbly? Well, the first, I think, is just an acknowledgement that pride is something that will always be with you. It's not a one-and-done thing in your life. There are th- some things in your life that you and I will face every single day as a temptation, and it's never going to be something that you can let down your guard against. But in general, there are still ways that we can become a people that Jesus is talking about here in the Scripture um, to be humble. So how do we get rid of pride in our lives? Number one, we need to consistently to look in the mirror of Scripture to expose our pride. See, a lot of times you think that the, you're reading the Bible, but the Bible is actually reading you. It's showing you your motives and your intentions and um, the things in your life and the places in your life that you would not want to look. The, the Apostle James actually talks about Scripture like it's a mirror and that we can hold it up to our faces and we can see the reality and the truth about ourselves. There's so many times I'll go in the morning and start reading something in Scripture, mad about something somebody else did. I can't believe them. And by the time I'm done that morning, sometimes, not all the time, I'm just deeply convicted about a blind spot that I had in my own life. Bonus points, in addition to holding up the mirror of Scripture, but to hold up your life to other people, to make yourself accountable to other people. And this is what I hope happens even in our growth groups and our DNA groups. Ask somebody in your life, Ask a friend, someone you trust, this question. If I am being prideful, uh, how, would I be, be, how would I be prideful? How have you experienced me being prideful? Sit down. They, I guarantee you they have some answers. You might not be able to uh, see it on, on the surface, but I guarantee you we all have it in our lives. And we would do very well to ask those who are around us, who we trust, uh, how am I being prideful in my life? And to let them be a mirror to show us who we really truly are. So the first thing is we need to look in the mirror of Scripture, and we need to ask other people about um, the pride in our lives. Uh, The second thing we need to do is we need to celebrate grace. Uh, What is grace? Grace is that God gives good things to people who do not deserve it. Mercy is that God withholds judgment from people. But grace is a step further than that. Grace is that God gives good things to people who don't deserve it. Now, why is it so important when we think about this in the context of pride? Because pride is almost always comparative. Pride is almost always saying, I am better than this person in this way or in that way. But the economy of grace does not operate on merit. There's one scripture in, uh, where Jesus is talking about being a shepherd. And Jesus, uh, we sang about this, we just sang this a couple of minutes ago. Jesus says he is the kind of shepherd that if he had 100 sheep, And if one of them wanders away based on their own fault, Jesus would leave 99 unattended and go after the one that that is lost. No other shepherd would do that. Why would you leave 99 uh, sheep vulnerable in the pursuit of one? And that doesn't make any sense unless you were the one that's lost. So Jesus would leave 99 to get one. There's another story in Scripture where Jesus tells a parable about people working in a vineyard. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a worker who gets people, a landowner who gets people to work in his vineyard. He gets one group of people to work at 6 a.m. 
He gets another group of people to work at 9 a.m. He gets another group of people to work at noon. And he gets another group of people who come in like at 5 p.m. And they only work an hour. Scripture says that at the end of the day, Jesus lines up everybody from the people who got there first to the people who got there last. And he gave them all the same thing. The people at the front of the line were furious. They're like, yo, bro, I've been here since six. I've been here for way more time than they have, and you give us all the same thing. What is going on? And here's what Jesus says the landowner would say, and this is what God would say to us. Are you mad because I'm generous? That parable is not about us. It's about a God who is generous, who gives good things to people who don't deserve it. There's another story in Scripture where there's all these people in, in, in the temple putting in their offering into the plate. And Jesus says, there was a, a widow who had two mites, two pennies, and she put those in the offering basket. Jesus says, her offering was worth more than huge sums of money. So let's do a recap on the economy of grace. In the economy of grace, one sheep gets more attention than 99. One hour workers get the same paycheck as 12 hour workers. A widow's two pennies is worth more than huge sums of money. Grace is terrible math. And if you approach God and the economy of merit, of the, the, the scales of who deserves what, you're always going to be frustrated because pride is always comparative. But grace, if you celebrate it, if you allow it to take hold of your life, if you allow yourself to become dependent and say, God, I need grace in my life. And we celebrate that. The more you celebrate that, the more you will feel pride being evicted from your life as we uh, get more and more uh, grace in our lives. The other thing we need to do is we need to expose the idols that are causing pride. My, my, my. We need to, behind every single, behind, behind pride, there's, there's an idol. And we need to do a good job of dragging our idols out to the light and exposing them. Um, here's the thing about idolatry. Idolatry is when we make anything equal or above God. And here's something that I've seen in my own life. This is me. This might not be you. I struggle to take Jesus' words to heart when I don't want to do them. So Jesus says, pray for your enemies. I'm like, not doing that. <laughs> when I think about the last couple of years, post-George Floyd, and I hear about the scripture that says, pray for your enemies, that isn't, that's not meant to excuse horrors done. That's not meant to say we shouldn't work towards systemic reforms. But Jesus doesn't want us turning into Pharisees who are better than everybody else, who are resisted by God because we're so full of ourselves that there's no room for God. So when I think about the scripture that says, pray for your enemies, pray that they would change. In my heart of hearts, if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't want them to change. I want them to be destroyed. Jesus says to pray for them, for their hearts to change, for things to change. And I don't want to do that. And it's pride keeping me from doing that, from following Jesus's command. And deeper than the pride is an idol that says, Jordan, you know what you, ah, uh, yeah, Jesus said that, but you know, what you, you know what you're supposed to do. Even though Jesus says this very clearly, your knowledge and his knowledge, they're like one in one A. Instead of realizing the gap that exists between us and God. As a matter of fact, there's one scripture in Isaiah 55, it says this, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my thoughts and my ways higher than your thoughts and your ways. God is different. His thoughts, his ways are higher than ours. And God is inviting us. 
Listen, God is inviting us to an active dependence on him in whatever area of life that we would be people who are like animals who have learned to accept the control of someone above us. Now, here's the thing that I've realized in my life. I don't always feel like doing what God tells me to do, but after I do it, I feel differently about it. Here's something you'll notice. If you are a feeling-led Christian, this is what you're going to do. You're going to wake up in the morning, and you're going to do whatever you feel that day. Tomorrow, you're going to feel differently than the, day, than the day before. And your life will have no compass. Your life will have no center because you're always just going to be going based on how you feel. Jesus calls, calls us to not be led by feelings, but to be led by actions and to trust that our feelings will catch up to it in the end. So what God invites us to is to take steps of faith, following him in obedience, trusting that our feelings will catch up in the long run. Now, if you trust Jesus then you don't need to understand everything that he's asking you to do in order to do it. And that's the essence of trust. It's not that we understand the what, but we understand the who, and we put our lives in, in that way. So number three, we expose the idols that are causing pride. Often that idol is, is us. It's ourselves in the mirror. It's us thinking more highly of ourselves than we, than we uh, ought to. And the last thing we need to do is we need to constantly be asking God for forgiveness. We need to be confessing our pride and asking God for forgiveness. So trusting that God will be merciful to us because God is merciful to us and he longs to be merciful to us. And just in the act of confessing and admitting that we are prideful, um, God will give us grace. God, yes, resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I would like you to please stand with me right now. We're going to pray and confess our, our pride and ask God to forgive us for the ways that we have gone astray from that. So Father in heaven... Forgive us for being prideful people. So often we think that we are righteous by our own actions rather than receiving righteousness through the blood of Christ. Lord, we do not like to admit that we are weak. And instead, we look at the failings of other people. We often think that we are better than others and we expect them to be perfect for us. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us having an, for, for having an arrogant attitude toward our neighbors in the body of Christ toward our neighbors who don't yet know you, and to those we don't know but we stereotype. We fail to see other people as made in your image with infinite possibility for your grace to radically change their lives. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for our pride. Help us to see ourselves through your eyes, the eyes that looked at the world from the perspective of the cross. Help us to see our need daily, and every single day forward. God, have mercy on us. God, have mercy on me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.